We welcome you to the Truth Simply Put, our broadcast and teaching series at the Basilea Commission. You're about to receive God's unadulterated word, brought to you by Pastor Alexander Victor. Challenging, uplifting, and provoking you to new dimensions in your kingdom walk. And now, today's message. Do we really understand what took place on the cross? Because if we did, there's some conversations we will not be having. It's not. We have successfully, and I don't know how we did it, separated the cross from the life of the believer. It's like you, you, it's like you just get saved, and then after you get saved, let's now start. I heard somebody once say salvation. Recently, actually, a reverend preaching saying salvation is not enough. Yes. When you get saved. So it's just the first step. Yes. It's not enough. Because what they understand as salvation is sinner's prayer, saying I believe, and entering Believer's Foundation class. And that's why you have a lot of people, I said during Soteria Word Feast, most people who are championing works are those who are doing a shoddy job of living according to the works they are preaching. Doing a terrible job. If you understand the fullness of what Christ did on the cross for you, that very day, your deliverance is complete. Every oppression for the believer is squarely a fault of his ignorance. Every oppression, every oppression is a direct result of the believer's ignorance. And let me add, therefore, the believer's complicity. You cooperating with it. You believing that they can actually do something to you. There's a level that you believe something. You will show up in your room at night as a mirage and you believe, you believe you saw a cat in your room. You'll actually see a cat where there is none. But you are so convinced you saw a cat with its shadow. If it's not real, why did it have a shadow? It had a shadow. I heard it. You know what happened to you? The devil has amplified your possibility to become your reality. Do you understand? The devil has taken advantage of the possibility you have given to yourself that cats actually show up in the room of people at night because of what you have heard, what the prophet has said, or what the Nigerian movie has shown you. So one night you are there and you're in your lowest moment and you will see a cat where there is none, but you are too convinced you saw a cat. You are too convinced you heard something. Bush baby. I went to a boarding school. I, kept, I came out of the hostel many times. Can I have an encounter with this bush baby? And people will talk of bush babies like they met them and talked at the river. They, can you not hear? Can you not hear? When I was in secondary school, aha, I was doing deliverance. Just three SS1. Yes, deliverance. I was in a missionary boarding school. So the kind of things we see. Come and take us to the bush baby. Bush baby we are not seeing. The day we are up, we will not hear the bush baby. The day you, you are sleeping, you will not hear the bush baby. Only when you are awake and you can't sleep. Bush baby, bush baby. When the bush, you didn't see the baby. Because you become convinced 
So the devil amplifies what you have made possibility. Nothing can oppress a believer that is not contingent on his ignorance or complacentness. Nothing. Nothing. The reason why you are doing those things you are doing is because somebody managed to convince you that he runs in your family. And then they managed to establish a pattern where the pattern does not exist or doesn't mean anything. You successfully establish it, but everybody in your family dies at 40. Everybody who's above 30 is not married. Hey, you too, can you not see? Why is it a struggle? All of a sudden, you make marriage a goal. Because somebody has tampered with your sense of priority. And so they make you feel, ah, okay, wow. It's true. But could it be that everybody in your family is an achiever? Or just an independent-minded person? Or just somebody who is not inclined towards marriage. Or somebody who will not get married. 1 Corinthians 7. It says African believers have made marriage a prayer point. In fact, Paul on the contrary tells you don't think about marriage. It tells you you get distracted by marriage. So it takes a level of spiritual maturity to be married and remain in the faith. I'm teaching you these things young people because it's important. It takes a level of grounding. It's not for babies. You start to struggle. Start to struggle. That's why I've always said it is easier to find your call before you find your spouse. I've always told you in this house, it is easier to fit your spouse into your call than to fit your call into your spouse. It is easier to fit your spouse into your assignment than to fit your assignment into your spouse. Lots of believing marriages, husband, believer, wife, believer, it doesn't work. Because one came before the other. When the other should have come before that one. Paul says, don't marry. If I have my way, oh, don't marry. But just so that you will not be born in you. <laughs> don't marry. And what he gave us a concession has now become a life ambition. Not to marry. You're here, you're not married. Your whole family, your mates are married. You're not here. You're not married. And then we now start doing conferences, prayer seminars for marriage. We now make marriage a ministry. And then you look at it and they will establish patterns. They will give you 37 reasons why it is ungodly for you to be at your age and not married. They give you a four-day program how to marry within six months, three months. Sons of God looking for marriage breakthrough because they wist not what the cross did for them. If you understand the far reaching, I've said this before in this house, over and over, it's the one message. If you understand the far reaching nature of the cross, the entire outlook of the Christian is shaped by their understanding or misunderstanding of what happened on the cross. Let me read this out. If it was all an act of God, which we have established that it is, right? if it was all an act of God without my involvement, and was something he did by himself, of himself, in all his might, why would anyone think that they are powerful enough to undo its effects in their lives? If the cross is all God, if salvation is all God, without your involvement, God's power on display, 
to save you? Who has convinced you that you can do anything? You are powerful enough to do something to spoil it. Let us now reason together. God in his own exclusive, his omnipotence saves you exclusively by his own power, by his own might, with no recourse to you. You didn't participate. You didn't want it. You didn't know what it was. You were enemies of God. Do you understand? It's not federal government and Boko Haram. Let us now negotiate, you know, bandits in Zamfara. Let us now negotiate. Salvation was not amnesty. You didn't sit down with God to negotiate, to lay down your arms. Then God will now save you. So when he saves you, the condition is that you don't go back to this, you don't do that. It's not amnesty. It's justification. He woke up, looked at you, because he had fallen in love with you, decided, I have to make you right with me so you can relate with me. You didn't even know you needed it. That's why when he showed up, you began to fight it. You were enemies of God. And in the midst of your ungodliness, Romans 5, 8, he died for you. Before he died, Jesus was shouting it. No one comes to me. Remember I showed you that scripture in John 6 and John 10? Except my father draws him. And then he now goes on in verse 14, chapter 14 and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. No one comes to me, Jesus, except the father draws him. And no one comes to the father except through me. So he says, the ones that I have, my father has given me, no one can pluck them out of my hand. And then he goes on the next verse to say that no one can pluck them out of my father's hand. It's not amnesty. It was not a deal. God didn't sit down with you and say, come, let's talk. So I'm about to save you. What are you going to do for me? What are you bringing to the table? Because I, I need to understand how this thing works. Nothing goes for nothing. Money for hand, back for ground. You understand what I'm saying? Nothing goes for nothing. So I'm about to save you from your mess. I need something in return. Whatever goes around, comes around. Whatever goes up, must come down. This is the law of karma, you know? So, what are you going to? You now responded, I will live for you. All of my life. I will never turn my back on you. How many of you told the Lord genuine lies? Genuine lies. You know, when, when we lied, when we said it, we were convinced. I will never sin again. I will never turn back away from you. I will never, but that the Bible says, he that puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is not worthy. Father, I have devoted myself to you. I come into covenant with you. And I've killed that thing in this house. God respects no covenant with a man. None. Pledge all you want to pledge. I covenant with you today. Father, if I sleep with this girl again, kill me. Kill me right there. You know those sons of the people that were sleeping in the mobile test and you just struck them right there. You just strike me, Lord. You have done it in your Bible before. Don't let me get up. 
No, it's not your covenant with him. There's no covenant between you and God on the table. That's why again I said, if you understand what God did in Christ on the cross, there is no covenant between you and God on the table. In God's scheme of salvation and redemption, you don't exist. Do you hear what I said? You are just a beneficiary of something you have zero participation in. Zero how many percent? I, I wish there was a way of adjectifying the zero. I don't know. We can't. There's no words for it. You are exclusively a bene- You are an onlooker. Eh? This is what the Godhead did. Just for me. Then you start to repent of seeing yourself less. You start to repent of running all over the place to try and appropriate what you can never understand fully. How much more appropriate by yourself. You start to repent for the amount of time you have wasted running around in circles. That's when you actually sit down and cry. Not for remembrance of your sin, but for recognition of your stupidity. You sit down, you cry. You cry, you cry. The Holy Spirit is consoling you. When you realize how stupid you have been doing church. How stupid you have been doing religion. How stupid you have been trying to work what God already worked. And what he worked from rest. Do you understand? What he worked from. Salvation is an edict of God. Do you understand? It's an edict. He just wrote it, signed it, executed it and delivered it. That's all. All he did was to receive it. And even if he rejected it, he didn't, doesn't undo it. It's an, or else a man can undo what the all-powerful God did. Then I'm sorry that God is not all-powerful. Change his qualification. If he can save me without recourse to me, then I show up in my strong head. And I change and I undo his saving, then he's not as much God as he says he is. And then all this is a waste of time for which we are too intelligent to be doing. We're not preaching the gospel because there's nothing else to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not believing the gospel because there's nothing else to believe. But if that God, if that God is so weak that we can just get up and undo anything he did from before time began, then there was no need for time. Because if he's supposed to be all-knowing, he's supposed to have factored all my nonsense into his plan. And then just remove me from coming. Don't bother to bring me because you know when I come, I will bring nonsense. So just save me in the spirit. Are you following me? Save, share existed in your mind before time began. Just save me in your mind and then from that mind, just translate me to eternity. Leave me there. Bring me into time and then leave me in this capsule of time to try and sustain what I did not initiate. I didn't sign up for this. So he sat down and he fell in love with a wretch like me. I became his wretch. But we have a problem. He cannot deal with wretches. But he fell in love with one. 
So he has to unretify these reds. So he has to now take you. Remember when I told you that the theologian said there's three options when a sinner stands in the presence of God. He must either condemn you or lower himself to relate with you or bring you up to his standard. And he chose that third one which took more, which took a lot more to bring about. It took a lot more if you understand what the cross did. Then you will not be talking about is it eternal? Can I keep it? Can I not keep it? Is anybody getting anything? Let's deal with that fairness argument. Why would someone who believed and then rejected Christ, we dealt with that a little bit, remember? Hebrews. Be given the same eternal life as though, as, as one who faithfully followed Jesus all their lives. If they did not keep their part of the deal, why should God keep his? If you are truly engaging with the gospel, you would have come across this argument. And then quickly they refer to apostasy. Quickly they refer to rejecting Christ. And then I showed you Peter's story. Right? Remember? Peter said, I don't know him. Three times. He said, I never met him. I never met the man. But something had gone ahead of Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. The not failing of Peter's faith was not up to Peter. Otherwise, Jesus would not have prayed for him. He just told Peter, take heed, therefore, that you do not fall in the day of temptation. So then I've prayed for you. Because I've prayed for you, your faith will not fail. If by your faith not failing, Jesus was referring to Peter not abdicating, then Jesus' prayer should have stopped Peter from denying him. Are we together? Jesus would have prayed for Peter so that Peter is now strengthened in the inner man. So that when the girl says to Peter, you, you look like him. Blah. Yes. As he, do you not know that as he is, even though I know John has not wrote it, but I'm telling you, you know, in a promissory sense, that John says in 1 John 4, which he's about to write a few years later, that as he is, so I is in this world. Yes, I was with him. You would think that that was what Jesus would have achieved by praying for him. Then they came and tell him, your accent is straight up Galilean. You talk like people that hang with Jesus. I, what is wrong with you? I said, I've never met the man before. Where then was Jesus' prayer for Peter's faith to not fail? Because by our standards of faith, his faith failed. He didn't just fail, he gave it up. He fell from the faith. The faith fell from him. He, he abdicated the faith. He didn't contend for it at all. This picture is crucial in understanding the preservation of your salvation. Crucial picture, stay with me. Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You do, Peter. In the faith, you fail. But your faith, which is my investment, will not fail. So here's what that prayer does. 
The prayer goes ahead of Peter before the Father and registers Peter among the people God has given to Jesus. And God registers Peter as one that cannot be lost. When Peter chooses his earthly life, his earthly reality, over his now spiritual reality, it does not ring in the annals of heaven. Because Jesus' prayer for Peter is that his faith cannot fail. Do you understand? Your, his faith cannot fail us not uh, yeah, so that he will not deny you. No, Jesus went ahead. And what God heard was, even if Peter comes back and says, I'm not doing it again, you can't lose Peter. Because Peter did come and say, I not do. I want to live. How is this Jesus going to help me right now in what I'm going through? In this peril, in this sword, Romans 8, in this persecution, in this death, in this tribulation, Jesus can't help me. So leave Jesus first. Jesus can't help me right now. But Jesus prayed for Peter. So come peril, come tribulation, come sword. Nothing could separate Peter from the love of God in Christ. Not Peter's love for God. The love of God in Christ. So prayer went ahead. Now, at the right hand of the Father, this now glorified Jesus, having paid for you, having redeemed you, having purchased you, having justified you, having imputed righteousness, and on account of that work he did for you, having now been given a name, and having now been exalted, I showed you all this, right? that Jesus, Son of God, God, not Son of Man, Jesus, Son of God, Christ, Christos, is at the right hand of the Father. Uncle, he's interceding for you. Where do you want to go? A Jesus, Son of Man on the earth before the cross prayed for Peter and shut down and locked his eternal security before Jesus even died. Now he died. What more? He rose, ascended at the right hand of the Father, paid the sacrifice for us once and for all. Didn't stop there. Now sits at the Father's right ear, telling him, remember I paid for this too. Remember I paid for that too. We have a promise. The covenant we have has nothing to do with him, but it covers him. The devil comes every day when the sons of God come to present their matters before God. And he makes all the noise and Jesus tells the father, I paid for that too. And the devil goes and he tries again and tries again and he comes back and he says, but can you see? They have said they are not doing again. Jesus tells the father, I paid for that too. And, 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 and that's all he's doing now. Interceding for you. That's why I told you there's only one intercessor. Christ. He's not praying for you to be saved. He's constantly holding up what he did as a memorial before the Father. You want to go? Go. You want to leave salvation? Leave. Where are you living? Where are you going? Who is it, who is it in? 
Save Johnny. We don't understand what the cross did. Because if I am in doubt of the eternal security of my salvation, then God is very, very unjust to have saved Peter and kept him saved when he abdicated and said, I don't know him. No, no, you can't, it can't be double standards. You can't, you can't do that. How does that make you a just God? I understand you're not a fair God, but you are just. You're just. How does that make you just? No. He prayed for Peter. Peter survived his own rebellion. Are you catching what I'm showing you? His own, his own, his own, his own. This was not sino. This was what you call blasphemy, apostasy. I don't know Jesus. It's not, I know him, but I'm struggling. Things I want to do. I find myself not doing things I don't want to do. I find myself doing, you know what? The law of sin at work in my members. No, this is not, this is deeper. This is deeper. I don't know the man. I never met him. You, Petros, upon this rock, I will build my church. You, Peter, flesh and blood, did not reveal this to you. You, Peter, that said, ah, see Glory. Let's build three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You, you, Peter. If Simon the Zealot had said so, or Bartholomew, who we have no record of, or Thaddeus, you say, eh, it's Thaddeus. After all, was he? he was just completing the number 12. But Bartholomew, Thomas, eh, is that not his nature? Last, last. Peter, tasted of the Holy Spirit partook of grace encountered the word of God as Hebrews did everything you have, Peter already enjoyed it and he gave it up God said try again gave it up a second time and God said try again third time try again salvation is not about fairness it's about God's justice who is he being just to? Himself. <laughs> he holds the yam and the knife. He cutteth it whithersoever he willeth. And he said, I died for the world. Who was offended? Is he you? Who was offended by the sin of the world? God. Who needed to be appeased for the sin of the world? God. Whose heart was broken by the fall of man? God. Who got up and said, I am going to reconcile man to myself? God. Who then got up and said, I am going to be the one that reconciles man to myself? God. Hmm? The sacrifice I am going to need to present to reconcile the world to myself in order to appease myself is myself. So he was the initiator, the executioner, the sacrifice, and the recipient. All him. He was the one that was being owed. He's the one that paid the debt. He paid it to himself. He used himself 
repay the debt to himself on my behalf. In his justice, he said that salvation appeared to all men. And we do not yet see all things subject. But all things are subject. John 6.47. Is anybody getting this? John 6.47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, he who believes in me has what? Ephesians 2.4. It's actually 4 to 9, but let's look at emphasis on verse 4. Ephesians 2.4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, emphasis on verse 4, right? We have to continue and land it. Alright? But because of his great love, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, right? And it doesn't add faith there. And raised us up <laughs> together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. That in the ages to come, that heaven you're trying to make, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Keep going. For by grace have you been saved through faith. Go back to verse 4. That's the emphasis. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love. What did this love cause him to do? Verse 5. We're dead in trespasses. He made us alive because of his great love right he raised us up together he made us to sit together and he has assured us that in the ages to come grace is going to speak for us in christ what is the reason his great love reckless overwhelming unrepentant not your performance God knew how twisted you were going to be. And he still fell in love with you. He could have looked and looked and gone, this one is going to be a lot of problem. Let me, let me skip this one and love this one. This one is too much issue. No, his love is so great that he fell in love with us while we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive. In our deadness, he saw life. And because he saw life, he reckoned us alive. Because he reckoned us alive, he made us alive. Since salvation is gotten by believing, doesn't it make sense that it can be lost by stopping to believe? That's when the argument continues, right? We've just dealt with that. Salvation is not about fairness. It's about his justice. And all that justice was served. All of it was served on one man. So it's not that I'm going scot-free and doing whatever I like. It's that every punishment for my sin has been taken by one man. And he doesn't need my love, as it were, 
But man, if I understand how much he did, I cannot but love him. I cannot but live for him. I cannot but serve him. I cannot but worship him. Not that he does anything for him because he loved me while I was dead in trespasses and then made me alive. So clearly nothing I'm doing is responsible for his saving me. But as a son is my natural response to what he did. Does that make sense? So all of the, God's justice is served. All of it. Salvation is not about our trusting. It's not about our faith. And certainly it's not about our good behavior. Please answer me. What did you do to motivate God to save, to save you? Please help me answer. You trusted him. So because you trusted him, God, went, ah, see, she's trusting me. I have to save her. I can't waste this trust. Ah, see faith, see ginger. She just believe I can save her. I have to respond. No, salvation is not a response. Oh, she's nicely behaved. I would gravitate towards her. What did you do to motivate God to save you? So what can you do to convince him to unsave you? He needed nothing to save you. But now you are saved. He then needs something from you to keep you. God did not save you to keep you out of hell. I, 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 I put an artwork, I designed an artwork. Up. I wrote on it, hell is for wimps. Then underneath I wrote, dare to believe. Do you know, do you know what a wimp is? Because God is not taking or sending anybody to hell. That's if your hell exists the way that it exists. Looks like hell, right? Hell is for wimps. Sons don't talk about hell. So God now looked at you. Hey, I've created this bad place. Oh, I don't even know why I created it. Now, a lot of people are now heading there. What have I done? Let me now save them. Since I cannot remove hell, since I don't have any control over hell. Because Satan's place, I, I know I said I'm Lord of hosts, but that host, so now let me now save them from hell. Mm-mm. Judgment was not on God's mind when he sent Jesus. He did not send his son to the world to condemn. Is it in your Bible? Judgment was not on God's mind when he was saving you. No. Condemnation was not on his mind. All that was on God's mind when he started to plot to save you was love. Nothing else. Share pure love. In the absence of hell, God still fell in love. In other words, he didn't need hell to save you. Do you hear what I just said? The the, the existence of hell is a non-starter in the salvation conversation. Take away hell, God loves you. And God 
needed to save you because he fell in love with you. He's not trying to keep you out of hell. He loved you and he was saving you to be with him eternally. Hell is not on God's mind for a believer. Even a worse believer. Even a bad believer. Your mom tells you, go back to where you're coming from. Your mom does not expect you to go back to where you're coming from. The pain in your mom's heart, if you were like me, that knew that if going back is actually inflicting pain on your mom, you will not do it. Your mom is more restless than you. Where you went, they will treat you like a refugee. They will give you nice rice that evening, give you a place to sleep. Then tomorrow, we'll now go and intercede on your behalf. Let's look after you well so that we can also come into favor. Do you understand? With your parents. So you, you're treated like a rock star. That night. You sleep well. Your mom doesn't. Your mom will be baffled that you had the liver to go back to it. Your mom is restless. Where is he? Where is she? Is he okay? It's, it's, a, it's a thing of shock. But you are still... Do you know how, how many of you here have been disowned at least 10 times by your parents? At different times in your life? Yeah, different, different moments. You did something, you didn't do something. Even for getting born again. Even for changing church, your father would say, I'm no longer your father. I nearly lost my salvation for choosing to leave boarding school and come to a day school. Hey! But at the end of the day, they are still your father. Your mom will flog you and then treat you for flogging you. She will treat you like it wasn't her that flogged you. You are angry. And sometimes she's crying. Yes, we know. Then your heavenly father killed himself by himself. For himself too himself to save you now throws you away because you acted funny and he goes to sleep for eternity after all he did he can't sleep because his entire plan is defeated and if the whole plan falls apart you see God these are the tough questions it's on this knowledge that you can build the confidence of your salvation salvation is a gift it's a gift that cannot be taken back. If it can be taken back, it's not a gift. To suggest that God can collect back his gift of salvation or that we can abdicate our it is to ignore the meaning of being us by grace. And whose grace? God's grace, not you. God's grace. I said here, salvation is given entirely at owner's risk. The supplier of salvation does not accept refunds or returns. You accepted the gift. One chance. This is the definition of one chance. You're in, you're in. He saved you. He can't take it back. How about faith then? Explain that, right? Saving faith. An impute of God quickens you to receive the salvation that he already did without your participation. The moral argument, and I'll end there. The moral argument. If we've made heaven already, why should people bother to live a godly life on earth? 
the Pharisees' view, we talked about this on Thursday, was that salvation has to be maintained by keeping the law. I told you about somebody on Facebook who said that um, as many as received him, as many as believed him to them, he gave power to become sons of God. And he said this becoming is a process. He said you don't just become a son of God. When you get saved, you just, they just give you power to start becoming a son of God. So as you grow in the word, as you read the Bible, as you live righteously, as you live a holy life, then you are becoming a son of God. He said, Paul said that um, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. He said, Paul did not say has made us free. Paul said he made me, him, Paul, free because Paul had done some deliberate growing and righteous living. Paul had grown to being a son of God. So that's why Paul could say, I don't know about you, but me has made me free. You would jam these bigots out there. That's why I bring these things to this house. Now are we the sons of God? First John 3. He says, no. That there's First John 1 and there's First John 2. You have to fall, put away sin. Live righteous. He that loves God does not sin. Then you can now become a son of God. That's the Pharisee's view. That's today's religious view. That you get saved, that's God's part. Now that you are saved, it's time to play your part. And your part determines what God does with the rest of his part. How you play your part determines whether God will now, how God will end with you. It's up to you to write that narrative. Then he did not script it all from the foundation of the earth. This has never been the view of Jesus or the New Testament. If you don't have consistent morality and good works on earth, you don't have eternal life in heaven. That's why we're all trying to make heaven. By living a good life on earth. Because God is looking at eternal value, but he's measuring eternal value by earthly behavior. To make eternity, God is judging time. So he shouldn't have given you eternal life. He should have given you eternal life on probation. Does that make sense? Contingent on your behavior. Does that make sense? Provisional employment that will be confirmed on the last day. Yeah? On the last day, we now confirm whether you have entry into the pearly gates. You know the pearly gates where St. Peter is waiting? Say, oh, Manika, Manika, Manika. Come thou into the joy of the Lord. You have been a good girl, Manika. You know, heaven cannot pronounce it Manika. You know, I've got Manika. This be that now changed your names on the earth. And we don't have your record in heaven. No chance for you. Your parents gave you a name. You didn't like the way it sounded. You started growing. You now changed the name. You now live a good life. Nice life, oh. Now get to heaven. 
They ask you, what's your name? You say, my name is Barhat. They check, Barhat, Barhat, Barhat. Zero hits found. <laughs> what's your real name? Name now comes out. This is hell, my friend. Why do you change your name? <laughs> so we're trying to live holy lives, trying to live good lives, thinking that our earthly existence will impress him enough to give us eternal inheritance. Your earthly life to earn you eternal, then eternal life is cheap. If I can live for 60, 70 years on the earth as a good boy and I can earn eternal life, then it's really cheap. It wasn't worth Jesus dying for. There's no value. Just patience, patience. And in this case, hey man, there's all kinds of people that have made that eternal life. Who, who don't need Jesus? You don't need the finished work. They've earned it many eternal lives over. If it's morality. The Pharisees were, do you know what it means to tie it on mint? Mint, cumin, small spice, small little, what do you call it? It's not even a branch. You know the little thing like a twig? It's a spice, a spice growing plant, very small, cumin. And you take it out and you count 10 little leaves and you take one out and tithe to the Lord. You get Tic Tac, you know Tic Tac? How many of you remember TikTok? You open the TikTok, you point on the table, and you count. There's 20, two for the Lord, one tenth. The Pharisees tithed on mint and cumin. That's how pious they were. There was that kind of religious yoke that was being brought upon the New Testament church. In Acts 15, then Peter cried out, said, Why are you bringing upon these people a yoke that neither us, no, our fathers were able to bear. If it even saved, it might be tolerable. But it doesn't save. It doesn't save. The kingdom of God has never been about morality. Salvation has never been earned by anything a man does. Anything. I'm getting to the next argument, but let's make this very, very clear. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And he spoke this, this is Jesus. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Switch to the NLT. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. Remember when I told you Jesus preached grace? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you God that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. See Jesus' question in 14. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified 
before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Takes you back to Leviticus 13, doesn't it? Where God is telling the priests, Moses and Aaron, that if somebody is leprous, and the leprosy covers part of his skin, but there's some raw skin exposed, that person is unclean. But if the leprosy covers the person head to toe, such that there's no skin on display, that person is declared clean. Grace and works. Do you understand it? There's a part of you that is unclean. There's a part of you that's clean. But you're like, yeah, but pro- pro- check. I'm not completely leprous now. You know, it's not, it's not like I'm, I'm completely unclean. There's some part of me that is, that is okay. You're unclean. And you come completely presenting yourself and say from head to toe, I'm covered in filth. At that point, you're justified. That's why it's only the ungodly that God justifies. Do you understand? Because you're counting on his righteousness. You're counting on his grace, his redemption, his mercy. Not yours. Not yours. The nature of God that can get angry at his children and will punish them at the slightest provocation is not true. Does God chastise his children? Oh, yes. Get ready for it. Mm? Oh, it's lovely. Because of what it produces. Yeah, Hebrews 12 deals with that. New Testamental. God will smack you nicely. Straighten you out because he loves you. But he's not smacking you and straightening you out so he can make eternity. He is eternity. We are resident in him. He's not trying to get you to make him. Does that make sense? Having said that, our earthly sanctification is continuous. And this is to enable us mirror in the earth the life we have now received from God through Christ. Did you hear that? Our earthly sanctification is continuous. That's why by one sacrifice, Hebrews 10, 14, I believe he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And this is the nebulous mirror in the earth, the life we have now received from God through Christ. So you can live anyhow, but you can't live anyhow. Yeah? Paul makes that clear. First Corinthians 6, First Corinthians 10. You can't live anyhow, even if you can. The knowledge that you can enables you to not live anyhow. If you went crazy because they told you you are justified, then you didn't hear the gospel. You heard it with your head. Do you understand? Grace does not license anybody to sin. Anybody who is sinning under grace had already given himself his own license. Doesn't need, don't blame your sin on grace. Don't blame, nobody can blame sin on grace. First of all, grace abounds much more than sin. Sin can never be so large that it obliterates or eclipses grace. Ever. That would be darkness overcoming light. Does that make sense? Paul says, just before he quotes that Romans 6, that he said, can we continue in sin? In chapter 5, the last verse, he says that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So as sin is rearing its head, grace is dipping it. Each time sin is coming over you, grace is speaking. Do you hear what I just said? Every time a weakness comes, grace is suppressing and removing. That's what the intercession of Christ is doing. Grace always and will always be more grace than sin. Sin is not a threat to grace. Did you hear what I said? No, no, no. Sin is not a threat to grace. That's why I also wrote those provocative posts. I said it will take more than sin for you to miss eternity with God. 
It will take more than sin for you to get to hell. Sin is too small. Sin is too small to cost you your salvation. It will take more than sin. Ephesians 4.1. I'm still on the moral argument, right? 4.1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. I've taught you before not to walk worthy to attain the calling, right? NLT. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Let's see how the, the message puts it. In the light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. Romans 12 and 1. This is scriptures that call us into living a life worthy of our calling. Not to attain the calling, but worthy of it. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or in view of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Ephesians 2 and 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Where were we created? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 1 and 27. Philippians 1 and 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see that? Let's see how the message puts that. Let your conduct be worthy. Meanwhile, live in such a way that you are a credit to the message of Christ. Let nothing in your conduct hang on whether I come or not. Your conduct must be the same. Whether I show up to see things for myself or hear of it from a distance. Stand united, singular in vision, contending for the people's trust in the message, the good news. Giving credit to the message. Giving credit. Worthy of the gospel. Not worthy to receive the gospel. Does that make sense? Paul is telling this to believers now. Saints who have been sanctified, justified, redeemed. Telling them now on account of the calling you have received, walk worthy of it. Walk in such a way that you give credit to the gospel. How does the Amplified put that? Only be sure to lead your lives in a manner that will be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do we get that? Colossians 1 and 10. Colossians 1 10. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see that? 1 Thessalonians 2 and 12. 1 Thessalonians 2 12. That you would walk worthy. Have you been convinced by now? Of God who calls you into kingdom and glory. Put it in the message. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 12 in the message. Holding your hand, whispering encouragement, showing you step by step how to live well before God who called us into his own kingdom. NLT as well. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy for he called you to share. So you see, the calling is not contingent on your walking, but your walking reflects your calling. You see that? 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus 
that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and how to please God. Did you see that? How you ought to walk and how you ought to please God. So we are not living worthy lives in order to apprehend salvation. Does that make sense? We're living worthy lives as an outflow of the salvation that has apprehended us. Do you understand what I said? Yeah. We are just outflowing the salvation that apprehended us. That's why Paul says, and I'm striving to apprehend that for which I myself have been apprehended. Does that make sense? So, it answers to the question, first of all, if anybody's running around and acting, living funny because they can't, because the cross paid for it, they are, they are rogues. They are hiding under the guise of the gospel, wolves in sheep's clothing, to perpetuate nonsense. Sons of God that understand what the cross did know that they are called into living worthy lives or lives that give credit to the gospel. Do you understand? Your life doesn't help the gospel. People cannot be saved by your testimony. They will not last. Your testimony doesn't save anybody. The testimony of Jesus that God gave concerning him is what saves. There's no other name given. Do you understand? I was saved, you know, 20 years ago I was a drunkard. You know, I encountered this Jesus. You don't need that to preach the gospel. You don't need it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ. <laughs> Do you understand? The gospel is Christ. Because somebody, there's somebody out there who has never set a foot wrong and doesn't have Christ. So your testimony will not really throw them. And I used to smoke. So you too, you know, if you did it for me, can do it for you. And the guy asks you, can do what exactly? Can help me be faithful? I'm faithful. Can help me be rich? Rich. Help me be moral, upright. I, I feed the poor. I do everything great. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't womanize. I don't do fraud. So really, what was it, what's it your Jesus doing for me? And that's why we remember on, on the sign of this gospel said the gospel is an equalizer. If, it's a, if there's, there's a particular demography that the gospel is not relevant to, it's not the gospel. It's relevant across board. So you stick to what the gospel is and the gospel is a testimony of Christ crucified. Period. You're just a delivery boy. Yeah? God making his plea of reconciliation. Paul says, Corinthians 5, through you, as it were, he says. Remember? Be reconciled to God. Who has reconciled you to him? That's the message. Don't need to inject yourself inside. Look at me. Look at me. See, look at how I used to be. Yeah? So we live our lives to prove that we are disciples of Christ. In this understanding, the believer comes into a place where freedom is no longer occasion for the flesh. Because that freedom you have in Christ, if you are not careful, can pull you up into the flesh that the freedom killed. Remember when we said the old nature is never far. In this understanding, you come into the place where freedom is no longer occasion for the flesh. Galatians 5 and 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an occasion or an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. I would like to see it in the NLT. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use 
your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. So again, your freedom has the propensity to cause somebody else to stumble. The fact that you don't care, you can do whatever you like and do whatever you like, doesn't mean you should do whatever you like. Do you understand? Galatians says, use your freedom as occasion to serve one another in love. Does that make sense? So if there's a particular way that you will appear, or a particular thing that you will say, or a particular thing that you will do, you are encouraged to abstain from that in the freedom that you have. That's why I said a long time ago, in Christ there's a freedom that binds and a bondage that frees. In Christ. It's a freedom that binds and the bondage that frees. Did you get that? First Peter 2.16 For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. And the church say? NLT. The message then. Let's say the message. Exercise your freedom by serving God and not by breaking the rules. So you can just go doing whatever you like. We're not a random people. Our God is not a random God. Our lives give credit to the gospel. Does that make sense? And that means that not everything is okay to do. Even though our freedom is limitless. Did you get that? The submission is that we are saved in a function of works. But we are saved and we are saved to be a reflection of the salvation that we have. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening and we hope it has been a blessing to you. For inquiries and further information, please send us an email to info at the or visit our social media platforms.